We are in this interesting time and space uh, where we're not quite to Advent season, and yet we just came out of eight weeks of Jeremiah. And so uh, in that two-week time span, this week and next week, I thought, what a better opportunity for us to be reminded that uh, we've been called to love our neighbor. We've been called to... uh, to find out who our neighbor is and to show them love and compassion. And so uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Jerry uh, really had this vision to pass out door hangers. And so I had some door hangers made and uh, several of us gathered together and we covered uh, a couple of streets and, and canvassed a few homes and just put these door hangers on. They just simply say, hello, neighbor. The other side says, if you don't have community, uh, we'd love to invite you into ours and uh, church address. And uh, it didn't have the address, but it, it should. And so the new ones do. And so uh, had just some brief information. I just took for granted the fact that people knew exactly where we were. And so uh, we put these on doors, and, and it was a lot of fun. At first, I didn't want to do it, but over time, you kind of get used to it. And uh, everybody was really graceful and, and kind for us. Uh, and so we canvassed the neighborhood. And, and as we're doing this, it started uh, sparking more conversation and more thought. Do our neighbors know that we're here for them? Do our neighbors know that the doors are open, that we're, you know, wanting them to be here? Do they know that they can walk in? Because a lot of churches position themselves, especially older churches, uh, established churches like ours, they position themselves in in a way that says, we're good, you know, we're fine, like, this is our church, and you can drive by it, uh, but, but we're good, we'll invite you for an event, but until then, like, we're here, and so, I know we would never do that intentionally, but is that the vibe, so to speak, that we've put out into our community where we're closed off? We're fine. There's no space for you. There's no seats for you. Um, do they know we care? Does our neighborhood know that we're here for them, that we desire for them to be here? And so what I've been looking at is how our church can send the message to our community that we're not just here on the corner of Burkhardt and Washington, but we're actually inviting people to come in. Because the scripture actually teaches us to value interdependence and community, Though culture keeps separating us, it keeps polarizing us, it keeps pulling us apart, it keeps making us feel like we should be self-reliant and self-sufficient, the the, the scriptures keep inviting us to form lives around something greater than our own desires and jobs and goals. God invites us into common life alongside one another, creating space for community. And so this map is uh, a map of our city. It's, you can't see it from there, I'm sure. I'm positive of it. Uh, but it's a map of our city. It's Evansville. And uh, this, this little uh, black stick pin is our church. So we're right here, corner of Washington and Burkhart. Uh, I'll have this in the lobby next week. There are some streets that have been highlighted where we've canvassed the neighborhood and put uh, flyers out. And so uh, there's just maybe like five or six small streets and one of the things that I was kind of remarked at and, 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 and was able to, to look at is, you know, how untouched our city is by our church. And I'm not asking us to go, you know, out here. I don't even know where this is, so don't tell me. But, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking for us to, to be out here. This is McCutcheonville. No, we don't need to go there. But uh, why can't we just reach the people around us? Like, we pass a lot of churches. Amanda commented, there's a lot of churches on my way uh, to here. And I'm like, but we're not focused on that. How do you pass? How many people do we pass on a regular basis just driving to church that don't have community? I don't want to grow a church, okay? I'll be honest with you. In fact, growing a church is really complex, if you think about it. If this church tripled in size, we'd have a mass 
You'd have to wait in line for coffee. It would inevitably be out when you got here. You wouldn't be able to find a parking spot. Your seat would be taken by somebody you don't know, and you'd feel uncomfortable telling them to move. It'd be horrible. We'd have so many kids in the nursery. We'd all be volunteering in there. Like, we'd just be in there with the kids because we'd have too many. It would create so many problems that some of us would go, this isn't worth it. And a lot of you have chosen this church for what it is, and I love that about you. But what it is is a beautiful community of faith, a space that is loving and, 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 and generous and kind. And there are people in our community that need this kind of space to come in and find the love of Christ and the love of others. And I'll be honest, it's easier for us to stay the same and it's easier for us to love the church the way it is. And we start to protect that. But is that really what God desires? Is that really what God is inviting us to do? Is that why we're on this corner that I've consistently called this place a beacon of light and hope, and I interchange some of the words, but a beacon of whatever to our community? And I think just in my head, I think visually, because our steeple is so tall, I feel like it is a beacon. It's very hard to drive down this road and not see us. But do we want people? Are we willing to invite people, knowing the challenges that it's going to pose? There's going to be people that don't look like us and believe like us and like us. And, and, and can we bring those people in and show them love and compassion and kindness and grace and mercy? Because it gets messier the more we begin to dive into inviting people into our community. And yet, that's exactly what God is calling us to do. In Mark 12, 28, it says, One of the scribes approached Jesus. When he heard them debating and he saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus, which command is the most important of all? This is the most important, Jesus answered. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other great commandment than these. Jesus, in this moment, simplifies the entire gospel message. He breaks everything down into two very basic things. Love God with all aspects of your life, not just parts and facets, but all aspects. Every part of your being should seek to love and to serve God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's what I know about us as a church, is that we get one of those right 100% of the time. I mean, you wouldn't be here at 10 or 11, 17 on a Sunday if there wasn't some interest in God and loving God. So you get this right. We get this correct. And, and I look back over the year, and I look at the sermons that have been preached here and the, 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 the studies and everything that we're doing here on, on site, and almost every message that's being sent out is helping encourage us to love God with all of our hearts, to accept Jesus and to follow his ways and to live morally. So we get this one right. The very little of what we do is talk about the other commandment. If Jesus has given us just two, we probably need to get them both right. Like if it was a list of like 15 or 20, I'd be like, yeah, we might miss one or two. But there's two, so we've got to get them both right. And the other one is a lot harder. See, it's easy to love God. I can love God. It's me and God. It's just me and God. God rarely ever, if ever, causes me any problems, right? All the problems I have in my life all stem from other people, right? And a lot of those people are coming to your house on Thanksgiving. So we're going to be inundated over the next couple of weeks and months with people. Have you ever met people? Oh, man. People are tough. 
So I'll just love God, you know what I mean? And I'll just do that better. I'll love God with all my heart. We get that. We get Bible and we get sacraments and we get giving and we get worship and we get the songs and, and we get that. People, now I like some of them. And that's the beautiful thing about the way that most of us live is that we like some people. You have a list, I have a list. We all like some people. And Jesus is addressing this in this moment. He says there's two great commandments, love God, love people. You can't separate them. And if we look in the Gospel of Luke uh, 10, we find this interesting exchange. And it's happening between Jesus and an expert in the law. And and on the surface, this expert is really testing Jesus, which is never a a good idea. But when we dive a little deeper into the story, we find that Jesus is actually describing the same dilemma that you and I face. Who's our neighbor? I can love a few people. And I can list them, and, and, and they're easy to get along with. But the problem is that Jesus hasn't just called us to love a few people. And we know through Mark that we're to love our neighbor. So we've got to figure out who our neighbor is. In Luke 10, 25, it says, Just then an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if we pause here, we recognize this is a very, very important question. It's a question that all of us, if we haven't asked, should be asking. Because I don't know about you, I plan to live uh, in eternity, so i, I got to figure out how to make sure I live in eternity. And so this is a, a very important question. It's probably a question that he asks everybody that he meets. It's like a party question. You know, we all have like our go-to questions. This is just one that he puts out there. Like, hey, what do I do to inherit inherit, uh, eternal life? And so Jesus is answering him in a way that he didn't expect. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, what is written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? The expert answered him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. He told him, do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? He's asking this very important question. How do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how do you interpret it? And he responds, I gotta love God and I gotta love my neighbor. And he says, that's correct. He's not asking a bad question. Because we all want to find out what it means to live. We want to live more than just a a mere existence. I want to live fully. I I want to uh, truly embrace what it means to be alive. And, And yet it's the way that we go about living this more that tells us a lot about our motives. The expert frames the question in the first person, which is smart. He's hiding his question in a request for advice. And then Jesus does what Jesus does best. He kind of flips the conversation. He answers a question with a question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? How do you interpret the scriptures? What do you think you need to do to inherit eternal life? He goes from being questioned to questioning. The power shifts. The expert of the law is now on the defense. What do you think? How do you read this? And the expert answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that's correct. The expert answers Jesus' question, summarizing uh, the law of Moses, and he answers correctly. He's regurgitating what he's read. He's regurgitating what he's been told. He's regurgitating what he knows here. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. And Jesus gives him a good grade. But if you've ever wanted to summarize our responsibilities as Christians, this is it. This man's given it to us. We've got to love God with every fiber of our being. And we've got to love our neighbor. And if you've ever tried to explain the gospel message to somebody else, it's very simple. Love God, love others. We've been uh, here saying, and it's on the wall, embrace God, embrace others. It's very simple. That is the core of, of, of what we are called to do. 
And a lot of us have asked the same question. We get the answer right. A lot of us can say the right things without knowing why we're saying them. We often know the right answer without knowing the why, why the right answer is correct. It's one thing to get the answer. It's another thing when the teacher asks you to show your work. That's when you really got to prove yourself. Well, I did the assignment. Well, let me see your work. And that's when things start to change. It's how we came about that answer that matters. The expert, he doesn't feel confident. He he starts uh, to overcompensate. And he asks Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? He tries to regain power by shifting the conversation back onto Jesus. He asks a question. Jesus responds to the question. He answers the question. Responds by putting it back onto Jesus. Well, tell me then, who's my neighbor? He understands the loving God part. That didn't need clarification. But loving your neighbor, that needs more explanation. And I wonder how many of us in our lives, we get the loving God part right. That's clear. We've been raised in church. We've followed Christ all of our life. Maybe you've come back to Christ or maybe you've just recently come to Christ. But we live in a Christian nation, so to speak. We live in a, a more or less the Bible belt. We, we know how to love God. That doesn't need clarification. That doesn't need explanation. But loving your neighbor does. What does it look like for us to love our neighbor? Most of us, when we ask questions like this, we're almost always looking for the minimum required. Right? There's just something about the human condition, the human nature inside of us that wants to do the minimum required to get by. Imagine sitting down to your Thanksgiving table Thursday and eating the minimum amount of food to survive, right? That's no one's goal. Mine is to see how much food I can fit on the plate before it collapses. The goal is never to eat the least amount possible. It's always to get the most. It's interesting that we want excess in every aspect of our life until it comes to helping other people. If it benefits me, if I gain, I want all of it. Just bring it all on. But all of a sudden, if I have to serve or sacrifice or give up, I want to now know the least I have to do in order to get by. What's the end goal? Eternal life. What's the least work I have to do? Who's the least amount of people I have to reach and love? What's the least I have to do in order to still get this goal? And the expert, he wasn't looking to be taught. He was just looking to justify his actions. Because really that's all any of us want. We don't really want to change. We certainly don't want to grow. I don't want to be told I'm wrong either. I just want to be justified. I just want the, good job, you did well, you answered correctly. I don't want to grow. I want to be confirmed. And he wasn't looking to expand his love. He was actually looking for love's parameters. How far do I have to go? If we look at this map and we go, well, here's our church. Uh, there's a square we drew around it because this is the, the intention. We hope to, to reach this area because there's no reason for us to reach the world if we can't reach our neighborhood, right? I'm thankful they come from Rockport and Owensboro and, and, and in further. I'm thankful we have people who listen to our podcast all over the country. I have a friend in Chattanooga who looks and listens every week, and we're thankful for that. But there's no reason for us to do that if we can't reach this. And so uh, this square is kind of an arbitrary square. It's not confined, but we do want to center in on this area. But it's easy for us in our lives to go, well, here's my square. Where do you live? Oh, you live in uh, Millersburg. No, I don't have to love you. You know what I mean? Because this is the square. God told me I had to love my neighbor, neighbor, close. And so I can, I can focus on that. And wouldn't we all love a list of people that we didn't have to love? Like if God just said, okay, you got like a five-mile radius around wherever you live, and that's all you have to do, we would love it. 
I'd get the map out. I'd draw it around. I'd know exactly where people lived. I'd know where everybody lived. I'm like, I don't have to show compassion to you. You're not my neighbor. We want parameters on love. I'll love you unless. I'll love you until. Until death to us part, right? <laughs> death, I don't have to love you anymore. There's these parameters that we want on love. And we want to draw lines. And God consistently through the scriptures, Jesus keeps pushing that further and further and further out. This man was proving his insanity by asking, who's my neighbor? If we have to ask the question, who do I love? We're probably missing the point. If we have to ask the question, well, who's my neighbor? What circle do I have to draw? What if I move? Do I have to love both neighbors or can I pick the one I like the best? What if we live in multiple homes? Am I having to love too many people now? Like that's a lot. We want parameters. We want restrictions. We want regulations. And I love it. You put me in a lane and I'll stay in it forever until you tell me to get out of it. If you just tell me who to love, I'll do it well. And Jesus keeps moving us out. He's essentially willing to love God, this man, but he's not willing to love others. He wants limitations on that. And Jesus begins to unfold his answer by doing what Jesus absolutely does best. He's telling a story, and it's a story if you've spent any amount of time in church you've inevitably heard. But even in culture, this story tends to be uh, a bit of a folklore or a, a colloquialism. It's a story that we use, just like David and Goliath, quite often in, in society. And so you've heard this story before. Luke 10, verse 30, Jesus begins to tell this story. He took up questioning, and he said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. Anybody ever had a weekend like that? Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he passed, he went on the other side. It's interesting to me that this man can be in desperate need, bleeding, naked, hurt, wounded, and another human could come up on him and pass on the other side. But here's what I know is that it's easier to ignore problems when we don't believe it's our responsibility. You ever notice that? It's easy to ignore problems when you don't think it's our responsibility. When we create boundaries around love, this is my neighborhood or my city or my country, we begin to become blind to the needs of others. These men of faith, the priest and a Levite who were most likely assisting the priest, they, they chose to ignore the problem and if I was a betting man, and I'm not, I would have put money on these guys stopping. These are our best hope. These are humanity's best hope. These are God's men. They're doing the work of the Lord. If you were to ask who's going to stop, you'd say, well, these men will, obviously. But they didn't. And it's possible that they felt like they had more important things to get to. Well, i got to get to church. i got work to do. It's possible they felt like they had already served enough. I mean, I've already preached one service today, right? So why should I have to do two? I mean, I don't have to do anything after this. I should be done for the day, clocked out, and I'm done. Maybe they felt like they had done enough. They'd served enough. They'd given enough. They'd sacrificed enough. They didn't have to stop and help somebody on top of all of it. Maybe they didn't want to get messy. I mean, I've not encountered someone who's been beaten, but I'd say it's probably a messy process. Regardless of why they passed, what we do know is that they were unwilling to love their neighbor. And all of us know that injustice exists. We know that people are victimized. We know that they're a great need. We know that they're desperate for help. And, and we understand that our world is in need. And, and yet, the way most of us operate is seeing is believing, right? 
We can easily ignore problems that aren't right in front of us, which is why advertisers push so hard. There's like melting ice caps and dying seals and puppies that are sad. And and they put all of these images in front of us. And we're like, oh, puppies are always sad, right, when they're homeless. And yet you don't know this until Sarah McLachlan's song comes on. And you're like, oh, my gosh, a puppy. It needs help. We know that animals die all the time and things are melting and freezing. And yet when it's in front of us, we go, oh, Someone, we should do something about that. We gotta, and so we're inundated with constant needs and faces. And, and I'm not saying it's not legitimate because it moves our hearts and it opens up our wallets and it works by and large because we're people who believe once we see. But what does it look like for us to change our posture to believe before we see? To automatically know that when we look at this map and, and we're just gonna center in here, we know that all of these lines represent hundreds and thousands of homes Thousands and thousands of people, families, struggling. And maybe they're all middle-class struggles. Maybe they're all lower-class struggles. Maybe there's some uh, upper-class struggles. They're all struggles. They're broken homes and fighting and, and, and all kinds of issues we can't even fathom. And every time you drive here, think about all the houses that you pass on your way and all the people that are represented that reside in there and, and all the, the people that need community, that need the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, but they haven't come to the knowledge of Jesus. Maybe they're just waiting for someone to say, hey, come with me. I know community. I know someone that will uh, journey alongside you. But see, we have to believe before we see. And what's beautiful is that when we believe there's a need, all of a sudden we start seeing it. My wife had bought a car uh, this year, because you can't hide money. She bought a car, and uh, she got a new job, got out of school, bought a car. She didn't want a car like everybody else, and so she bought a car. And, and it's funny, I don't know if you do this, but now I go, uh, yeah, it's unique. I haven't seen a lot of these. And then you go, oh, man, there's quite a few of them. You know what I mean? Because it's like you weren't looking for that, and then all of a sudden you start thinking about it, and you see it everywhere. And it's still pretty, pretty, it's cool. Regardless, if we'll just begin to believe that there's a need all of a sudden what happens is we start seeing it everywhere. You're standing in line at the grocery and you look at the person next to you and there's just not like an aimless, faceless person. But all of a sudden you see a story, you see a soul. You see someone who has the capacity to, to love God and to serve him. And all of a sudden it changes the way we go to the grocery. Or wherever you go, you're driving, you see someone on the side of the road. It changes the way you see them because now we're believing there's a need before we actually have to see it. And when we live this way, we stop walking and moving and operating with eyes and ears of our own, but we start operating with eyes and ears of God. How does God see people? How does God hear people? How would God respond to these people? We start believing there's a need and we start seeing those needs. And then there are final responses that we meet those needs. We step into those moments. Now we can't meet every need in the city. But we can't ignore them all either. We can't walk up and help every single wounded person. But we can't ignore them all either. And at some point we have to come to a place where we say, what is my role? What is my responsibility? See, a lot of us are constantly looking to shake responsibility. Government will take care of them. Somebody else will take care of them. It's somebody else's problem. All of a sudden, we're listing all of our, uh, our inadequacies. Well, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have any disposable. Nobody has disposable money. You know what I mean? Nobody has disposable cash. I can't help. I don't have this, and I don't have that, and I don't have that. And all of a sudden, we've created an argument that we don't have enough, so we don't have to do anything. And then we don't feel guilty when we pass on the other side. But the greatest stranger is our neighbor because God has bound all humanity together for the purpose of assisting one another. We're intertwined whether we like it or not. 
When Jesus gives us two commands, he says you gotta love God and you gotta love others. We don't get to separate them. Well, I'll just take this one, this one's easier. He says, no, you gotta do both. And the more we fall in love with God, the more we fall in love with one another. That's why people who are toxic and, and push others away or churches that are uh, not welcoming uh, and not accommodating, that they can't say that they love God because the more we love God, the more we love people. And the more we fall in love with God, the more we look around and go, we need people here that we can point to Christ and, and, and show love to. We need to change our methods of hearing and seeing. We need to begin to see people uh, for their souls. And the needs, they're not just global, they're right here. And, and sometimes it's easier to accept global needs. I could just throw a little bit of money at a problem overseas. Well, it's a mission. It's a, it's a thing. And, you know, and, good, and the shoeboxes are wonderful. But it's a whole lot easier to throw some money in a shoebox than it is to actually pray for the person who lives next door. And, and, and we don't get to pick and choose. So the answer is both and. We give to shoeboxes and we send presents and we pray for people and we give to missions. But also we don't neglect our neighbors who live uh, in our immediate uh, vicinity. And the relational demands are much higher when we have to talk to someone in our town. It's a lot easier to send something overseas than it is to actually be involved in the nuances of someone else's life because they're messy. And when you hear a need, when someone shares a burden, we then take on the relational responsibility. We go, we're going to fight through this together. Because your story is not your story. It's a story of community. And you learn your story in the company of others. We learn more about ourselves and about the God we serve when we invite others into our lives. And our society has been working against this the invention of the dishwasher is just one example, uh, 1850 or 1970, somewhere in between there. They invented the dishwasher, and suddenly people stop standing at the sink together and talk and do dishes, and now we just uh, stick them in a dishwasher and fight over who should unload them, right? TVs. When my kid was little, I'm like, we're going to have one TV in our house. One. Everybody's going to center around that forever because we're going to be close. 17 years later, we have probably 17 TVs, and everybody goes to their own rooms. We pull into our homes, we shut the garage. We don't have to see the neighbors. We put fences up. We don't have to engage with people around us. And we've created these little insular bubbles where we get in our cars, and we get in our homes, and we get in our workspaces. We don't have to engage with other people because other people are scary, and they hurt us. And our culture is starved for community, starved for intimacy, starved for real relationships, because instead of having actual community, what we've done is we've picked up the phone and we've been like, well, I'm connected to all kinds of people. I have 30,000 friends and we don't have a single person we can call when we need to move or have problems. We're connected online, we're connected virtually, but we're not truly connected. And I know putting a flyer on someone's door is really silly and a lot of people probably threw it away, but someone somewhere is going to grab that and go, oh man, this is what I've been looking for. I need people to care about me, and I need people I can care about. I need to enter into the circle, a cycle of giving. But what does Christian community look like for us? The question I keep asking is, how bound to one another are we? Is it easy to walk away? We've had people walk away this year. It's hard. It's hard when someone just says, I'm not going to church here anymore. We love them on the way out, but you have to wonder how committed they really were, or we were, to them. If someone can just walk away, then was there a real relationship there? Did we not do our due diligence to make sure we're building community. See, what I know about us is that we're not lacking biblical information. We're not lacking the ability and opportunity to learn more about the scriptures. What we are lacking, though, is the opportunity to build and expand on our community and expand our view of who our neighbor is. We don't need more biblical literacy. I love the Bible, and I want us to fall more in love with the Bible, and we do need an aspect of that. 
But more than anything, we need to fall in love with the reality that God is inviting us to care for the people around us. As our mission, I want us to build relationally. And the deeper we go with Christ, the deeper we go with one another. And those two should go hand in hand. I want us to be a church who's ready and willing to help the people around us. And I want others to see the benefit of community that we have. And in Luke 10, 33, Jesus continues his story. He says, a Samaritan on his journey came up to the man who had been wounded. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. When you see someone in need, what is your immediate response? Or what's your immediate thought? Not even, uh, not even response. It's the first thought test, right? I, I play the first thought test a lot in various uh, aspects of my life. But when you see someone in need, what is your first thought? Oh, somebody should help them. Roadside assistance is on its way. Somebody should call a police officer. What's your first thought? I better see what I can do. He came up on him and his first thought was he had compassion. Compassion for others begins in our hearts. As a society, we have a genuine lack of compassion. We have a 24-hour news cycle. We've become desensitized to pain and problems and heartache, and we do not feel anymore because it's so pervious in our society. We just constantly see it. It's in front of us all the time that it no longer phases us. And culturally, it would have been unthinkable for a Samaritan to have helped a Jew. Jesus was using this story with multiple layers, saying this guy should have never stopped, and yet... The one person who should have stopped kept going and the person who shouldn't have stopped stopped because loving your neighbor means showing compassion to those who wouldn't normally be around you. It's not just about people like us. It's the good, it's the bad. It's black, white, Hispanic. It's people who live like us and don't live like us and believe like us and don't believe like us. Jesus is calling us to be willing to help everyone to expand our definition of who our neighbor is. And many times we step into that calling and help others. And many times we don't, and, and you and I have to reevaluate our priorities. And by doing good, we all of a sudden find that doing good is a lifestyle. And we go from doing good to living the life that God has intended us to live. And in Luke 10, 34, the Samaritan went over to the man and he bandaged his wounds. He poured olive oil and wine, and then he put, on him, uh, he put him on his animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, take care of him when I come back. I'll reimburse you for whatever extra expenses you have. I don't know if you've ever bandaged someone who's wounded. I haven't. I usually default to to Margie. She's good at that. It's messy. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll put some gloves on and I'll put some hazmat suit, maybe some goggles. I don't want to get involved, too involved. This guy just drops down. He's like, let's go. We got to fix this. It's messy. And a lot of us don't want the mess. A lot of us have our own messes, so we don't want to help someone else in their mess. This guy, it would have been easy for him to go, I'm just going to pray for you. I'm going to stop and pray, and then I'm going to go on my way, you know? We'll just stop. We'll say a prayer. I hope your bones heal and your wounds stop bleeding. Uh, pray, and then move on. And He would have left feeling like he had done something. The Samaritan actually took care of his immediate needs first. See, a lot of people need their immediate needs, their felt needs taken care of first before they ever hear the gospel message. A lot of times we're trying to tell people about Christ who don't have food on their table. We're trying to tell people about the love of Jesus when, you know, they're emotionally bleeding. And we've got to help people walk through these moments to go, we're going to get through this, and then this is why we we do this. See, you're not the hero of their story. Uh, the Samaritan's not the hero of the story. Jesus is. And everything that we do is done to point people to Christ and the love of Christ. And so we don't do these things to get credit or to get honor or to get recognition. We do them because God is great. We serve and we help and we say God gets the credit and he gets the glory. But this guy doesn't stop with bandaging. That would have been enough. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of trouble. It's a lot of risk. But he goes and he takes him, packs him on his, on his animal. He takes him to a hotel and he pays for it with his own money. 
He says, hey, I gotta leave for a bit, but I'm gonna come back and make sure he's cared for. It's a long process. See, a lot of times we're good at the short term. Well, let me just pray for you. I hope everything gets better. But what about the long term? Are we committed to one another through the long term? So you cannot love God and not love your neighbor through to the end. And I want us as a church to expand our definition of who our neighbor is. But it starts right here. It starts in our community. It starts with our neighborhood. It starts with these streets that we're centered in. God has placed us here for a reason. We're not here by accident. We're on the corner of Washington and Burkhart for a reason, as a beacon of light and hope into our community. And so it's time that we begin to see ourselves as such And we begin to invite people to be a part of community, to come to the knowledge of Jesus through the context of what we do here because what we do here matters. And we expand that. And and I don't know how far that'll be expanded. What I know is a lot of times we can get so focused on the world, we're gonna change the world, that we never do anything. What if we just change our neighborhood? What if we just look for ways that we can help others? There's elderly people everywhere. Can we rake leaves? Can we uh, fix their whatever? And, And can we just serve our neighborhood first? And then see how it begins to grow and spread. And in Luke 10, 36, Jesus responds to this man. He says, which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Priest? Levite? Samaritan? The expert replies, the one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus says this, and I want you to see these words. Go and do the same. Go and do the same. It's this simple. See, uh, we overcomplicate it. We make it harder because we get into our heads and we create all these things. And, well, I don't know, and I don't know, and I don't know, and I can't, and I can't. We make a lot of excuses. We make it really difficult. And what Jesus is saying through the Samaritan is it's not that hard. But it is going to take some effort. It's going to take some sacrifice on our part. Now, I remember preaching this passage about six, seven, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, Time is weird for me. But I remember preaching this. I was in uh, Tennessee, and I remember very distinctly getting in the car to leave for the day. I just preached this strong sermon. It's a hard sermon. And one of my kids was with me. And and I go out of the church, and I take a left, and I'm headed home. I'm tired. Uh, I had a couple services that week as well. and, And I'm driving. And within a mile, I see someone on the side of the road. I'm like, great. Somebody should do something about this. I've already preached, you know what I mean? Like, I've done my work, and I slowed down, and I'm like, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. And I stopped. It was like a flat tire, and so we jacked it up. I'm in my clothes, you know, and just take care of it, and, 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 and didn't take your credit. Hey, credit goes, I didn't say, hey, well, I'm, at, I'm at this church. You should come visit me. You know, I don't want anything for this exchange. It was wholeheartedly, all the glory and honor goes to God. Uh, grace and peace be with you. And we moved on. And I don't know what happened to him. Probably never saw him again. Uh, and you might be here today. I don't know. Uh, but the reality is, there are many times when I'm not that guy. And the problem with preaching this message and you being here to hear it, and if you're on the podcast, you're listening, it's too late. If you're here, it's too late. Is there are going to be opportunities now that are going to come up. Because we're believing before we see, we're going to start seeing. Now, you don't respond, well, I get it. I've done that too. And there's grace and there's mercy and there's a new start. But here's what I know is that there's growth opportunity for you and I to step into this moment and go, okay, this is what he was talking about. This is what Jesus was saying. This is what he was, I could pass on the other side. It'd be a lot easier. I don't have any money. I don't have any time. I'm in a hurry. I got this and this and this. Or, or maybe this is the moment where we stop. And who knows what will happen. There's no expectation, no agenda. We're just going to love for love's sake and let God do the rest. 
And that's what I hope for us. I hope we're people who stop more than we pass on. We're going to pass on. There's just the reality of it. But I hope we're people who stop more often. That's what I challenge you with today. The words of Jesus, go and do the same. Go and do the same. So here's how I want us to close this morning. This is a map of our city. Um, I feel like we have a responsibility to pray for our city. Pray for our city. Pray for the people living in our city. Pray for our neighborhoods. Pray for uh, our community. Pray for our local government. We've got a new mayor and on and on. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to, to lift up the people in this city first in, in prayer. Because this is where God's placed us. This is where we are for the time, and we want to make sure that we uh, leave it better than we found it. And so I want us to pray for our city. So I'm going to invite you, if you feel comfortable, I'm going to invite you just to stretch your hand towards this map. If you want to go ahead, let's stretch our hand towards the city of Evansville. I want us to begin to imagine, picture the cities, maybe where you live, maybe the neighborhoods and the streets where you live and the homes and, and with the style of homes and the uh, yards and, and, and the people out there. We begin to picture real faces. It's easy to depersonalize But we want to personalize prayer. We want to bring it uh, down to the very center. These are human beings that need God, and we want to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love Evansville as much as uh, more than we could ever imagine, that you love this city. This is your city, and you've been so fortunate to place us in the midst of it. And so, God, may we make an impact, a positive impact. May we make a difference. And it may be one person, it may be two, it may be a home, it may be a street. But may we position ourselves in such a way that we don't leave our city the same when we pass. So Father, we thank you that you're opening up minds and softening hearts. This is a beautiful season that we're entering into where people are more conditioned to listen and, and believe in, the, in Christ. And so Father, we ask that you would um, lead us to reach people to do what you've called us to do. So Father, we thank you that you've uniquely positioned us in such a way that we're able to do what you've called us to do. We don't have to do what others are called to do, but we can do what we've been called to do. So we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.